This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to our February 16th show. We're going to be talking today about two primary viruses in the news. Yes, the flu, where over 13,000 people have already died. And we're bringing in an expert to talk about the coronavirus. Joining us today is Dr. Trish Pearl, infectious disease specialist at Parkland Health and Hospital System, and she's the chief of infectious diseases at UT Southwestern Medical Center. So first, here is Steve's conversation about this year's flu with Dr. Pearl. You know, as we look at 2020, how would you say in your mind the flu season in the U.S. is and in Dallas and even at Parkland this year versus other years? This has been an unusual flu season in that we have we had a very early start to the flu as it actually began in September, which is earlier than we're used to seeing. We had a predominance of one of the flu strains called influenza B early on. That tends to be a strain we commonly see in children. And it can affect the elderly also, but the groups in between don't tend to get as sick. And then right after the holidays, so in the beginning of January, is where we saw a second resurgence, if you will, of the influenza A strain. So early season, very, very active influenza B season, and then currently what we're seeing is a lot of influenza A. As you alluded to, there have been deaths, which is again, quite high, and a lot of morbidity also with primarily children ending up in intensive care units. So very, very active flu season, maybe not as dramatic as others, but unusual. You know, many people, laymen especially, say, I'm not sure I'm going to get the flu uh, vaccine or the flu shot because it's probably not going to work. How has the flu vaccine this year been preventing flu? The influenza vaccine is anywhere from 60 to 70 percent effective in preventing flu, but we also know that it prevents intensive care unit admissions and death even if you get um, the influenza, so you'll get a milder form of influenza. It's not as severe. So what we say is, yes, even though it's not a perfect vaccine, it's clearly very, very helpful. In terms of how effective it's been, there's been one strain, which is the influenza B strain, that um, what has been circulating and what's in the vaccine has not matched as well as we would have liked. But the other strains do appear to be relatively good matches to what is currently circulating. Who would you say in the listening audience is most at risk to have complications from the flu? That's a great question, um, and I'm going to answer it two ways. So the people who are at highest risk of complications are the very young who can't get vaccinated. So you you don't get a vaccine until you're over six months old and the elderly. But people who have any kind of chronic illness, such as heart disease, if they have liver disease, if they have 
any kind of um, cancer, acute leukemia, lymphoma, uh, diabetes, and then people who are very obese. And then finally, women in their third trimester of pregnancy are the highest risk for complications of influenza. So those are the, the groups we target. Now, that being said, the way influenza is spread and part of why we want everyone vaccinated is that because those people may not respond as well to the vaccine, we like to do what we call a cocoon. So we have the people who are around them vaccinated to protect them even further. So what you do is you have a ring around your people who are vulnerable because you don't you want to sort of minimize potential transmission to them. So that's kind of the idea with really getting universal vaccination out there or everybody vaccinated is even so we will have high risk groups who may not respond to the vaccine as well or who are at higher risk of complication. But if we can form a kind of a curtain, then we're going to protect them more. Does that make sense? Makes good sense. In fact, the cocoon effect, uh, I think our listeners could really identify with. So thank you for making that distinction. Another thing for our listeners that suspect that they may have flu or flu symptoms, when should they go to their primary care physician or if they don't have one to an urgent care or even an emergency room? First of all, sometimes your doctor's office can handle a lot of this. The reason is to go to see your doctor are two or threefold. First of all, if you're in that group who is at high risk of complication and you, you think you have the flu, we do have medication that we can give you that may actually further prevent serious disease. So, for example, say you have lung disease, you've been vaccinated, but you still think you've gotten the flu. You wake up, you feel like you've been hit by a ton of bricks, you've got a fever. You know, in that person, if we identify and get to them early in their symptoms, we can actually give them an antiviral that may decrease the duration and severity of symptoms significantly. And that's well-documented in guidance from public health officials, including the CDC, that that's what you want to do. So that would be one reason to go to get care. Now, you don't necessarily need to go to an urgent care or an emergency room. That's something you can handle with your physician. And sometimes, you know, they may have you come in and get tested or may not and then just, you know, treat you. The second instance is everyone feels terrible when they have the flu or a lot, most, a lot of people feel terrible. I, you know, they are in bed, they have a fever, and that's normal, but that really should be a relatively short duration. And so if it, if it continues for long periods of time, that becomes concerning, especially if your fever's gone away and then the fever comes back. You start um, coughing up green sputum, you may then have developed a pneumonia after your influenza. So those people, absolutely, we would want to come in. And then even with influenza, there are just complications associated with influenza that people may not appreciate. So 
you can see confusion. You can see actually a lot of difficulty breathing early on in the illness that would be considerations that this person is not doing well with this particular viral infection. But I don't think people should feel at all uncomfortable calling their physician's office if they're not sure whether or not they should seek medical care. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. And when we come back, she is going to join Steve Love again to talk about coronavirus. And remember, we have all of our episodes now on all the major podcast players, including uncut versions that we don't get to air on KRLD. That's on your favorite podcast player. We're right back with more on coronavirus. Steve Love and Dr. Trish Pearl on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We are continuing our conversation now, shifting gears to coronavirus with Steve Love and Dr. Trish Pearl. She's infectious disease specialist at Parkland Health and Hospital System and is chief of infectious diseases at UT Southwestern Medical Center. What is the 2019 novel coronavirus? What exactly is it? So coronaviruses are um, respiratory viruses that were actually described in the 1930s, but not really known to cause human infection until the 1960s. Um, What people will be surprised to hear about is there are actually four coronaviruses that cause the common cold, and they actually may cause up to 30 to 40 percent of Uh, what we would call a cold or upper respiratory tract infection in um, adults. So it's very, very common, and it causes runny nose, plus or minus a little bit of fever, um, cough, and all of us have probably had a coronavirus infection. However, what's unique is in um, 2002-2003, a novel coronavirus emerged, and that virus then ended up causing the disease that we call call SARS, which ultimately um, led to about 8,000 cases around the world and had a mortality of around 10%. And then 10 years after that, so in 2012-2013, MERS, or Middle Eastern Respiratory um, Syndrome, was also described and ended up, um, has caused about 3,000 cases around the world and has a higher mortality around 35%. And then finally, this virus, you know, as everyone is acutely aware, emerged, we think, sometime in late November, December in Wuhan and has, as of today, caused upwards of 20,000 cases. And I'm sure that'll be much higher tomorrow and appears to have a little bit lower virus, Uh, I mean, a little bit lower uh, mortality. These viruses are what we call zoonotic in that they have an animal host, and we think the animal host um, is the bat, and then they have what we call an intermediary host. So the virus in the bat really doesn't infect humans. It goes to an intermediary host. In the case of SARS, it was a civet cat. 
in the case of MERS-CoV, it's the camel. And it's between it's because of our contact with those intermediary hosts that the virus then gets into humans. Once it's in humans, all of these viruses have had human-to-human transmission. And what's really unique about the particular um, novel coronavirus that we've seen emerge from Wuhan is that it has been very well adapted in the human host, and we're seeing a lot of person-to-person transmission. So a long answer to a very simple question. Well, let me ask you this. The intermediary for the novel virus that we're talking about, is that the bat and the camel, or do we know? We don't know. So we, we suspect, and if you look at the uh, what we call the genome, which are the sort of the the DNA blocks of this particular virus, it's very similar to bats. It's actually closer to SARS than it is to MERS, but we don't know what that intermediary host is as of yet. There have been several different animals that have been proposed, but I think we have to really wait until we have more definitive information to say, this is what we think the intermediary host is. You know, when SARS was around, I remember reading that a vaccine was developed, but by the time the vaccine was developed, most of the SARS had kind of, for lack of a better term, run its course. Is there a vaccine or one being developed for this novel coronavirus? Yes, there is. Um, But I would say that's probably at least a year away. With MERS-CoV, there was actually also a vaccine developed, and what was interesting about that is that that vaccine was developed for the camels um, because it wasn't clear which humans you would vaccinate. Um, And so very much like what we do with rabies where we vaccinate the animals that are in contact with the humans, that was the proposed approach um, with MERS-CoV. You know, I know that uh, many of our listeners, I won't use the word panic, but they probably feel a real sense of urgency when they read about the coronavirus and they read about uh, certain flights being canceled or flights uh, being rerouted uh, and, you know, good precautions that the CDC wants us to follow. But we really shouldn't panic. We really should follow good health habits. So what can our listeners do, in your opinion, to prevent exposure to this virus? There are a couple of things that people can do, and I think your point is really important in that there's a lot we can do within our own control. And um, this is a respiratory virus, and it is spread by what we call droplets, three to six feet. So a droplet is simply what you cough or what you may sneeze. Um, And if you think about that and how far it can go, it can usually travel maybe three feet. And if you've got a really strong cough reflex, maybe a little bit further. So that's what we know about the virus. Um, In certain settings, it could be aerosolized, but those are very, very, very distinct settings, such as in intensive care units, that we really worry about that. What we're telling you to do is exactly what we're telling people to do for flu. We're saying, wash your hands. You can use soap and water. You can use alcohol-based hand uh, rubs. 
either one. And if you look at the literature, what that'll show you and what we learned from SARS is that that decreases the risk of transmission 30 to 50 percent, depending on what study you look at. So that's significant. Second thing you can do is what we call respiratory etiquette, which basically is when you cough or sneeze, cough into your elbow so that you're not spreading it all over the place. If you have a dirty Kleenex, throw it in the trash. Don't just dump it somewhere. If you're sick, stay home. And then finally, people will be surprised, but we want everyone to get their flu vaccine because if this virus does become more widely spread in the U.S., we're going to have a a hard time differentiating between influenza and coronavirus. So we want to make sure, one, that people don't get both infections simultaneously, but two, it gives us a little bit more comfort that they probably don't have influenza, but they have something else. And so we're really trying to tackle this using what we learned from SARS and MERS-CoV, as well as what we learned from influenza. You know, that's great advice. And to our listeners, just to reiterate what you just heard, please, if you have not gotten your flu shot, please get your flu shot. You certainly would not want to be infected with the flu and the coronavirus at the same time. It has really been a pleasure talking with you today, Dr. Pearl. And any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners regarding the coronavirus? Yes, I would like to talk a little bit about two other things we've been getting a lot of questions about. I think, first of all, you know, people have asked about, well, what about packages that I'm getting from China or things that I've ordered? There's no data right now at all that any of those, once they've traveled this far, that even if they were contaminated with the virus, that they would subsequently be contaminated. So as far as we're concerned, we're telling you to open these packages. You know, you can use canned food or or whatever you have. But again, that's why we want you to wash your hands is say for some reason there is some residual virus there. If you've washed your hands, then you've gotten rid of it. And so that's part of the important discussion that we need to have. Second thing is what about travel? Uh, You know, and what I would say is that the guidance around travel is changing so rapidly that what I say today is going to be wrong tomorrow. And so I just really encourage listeners to look at what the current recommendations are that are coming out from the state, local, and uh, federal authorities. You know, currently, there's been a lot of decrease in the number of flights that are going in and out of China. And I think people um, are a little bit worried about that. I think some of it is a business decision, but some of it may be um, to help control the influx of take people back from China. And this is going to be changing. So right now, just watch what they are saying in terms of getting the best advice for travel. We'll have more on the coronavirus in our final segment. But first, if you have an elderly family member, then you know how important this next topic is. You'll hear a story where medical records were basically lost due to Alzheimer's, and the care team was stranded to know how to provide the best care. Dealing with our elderly next on the human side of healthcare. care. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that affects many people. It deals with geriatric and senior behavioral health. And we've got an expert who is a psychiatrist, Dr. Charles Herlihy, who is the medical director for the Geriatric Behavioral Unit at Medical City North Hills. Dr. Herlihy, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm honored. So let's begin with a couple of questions for our listeners, uh, many of whom probably have experienced at least a family member or know someone in the geriatric uh, population or senior population. What really makes geriatric or senior behavioral health care so complex? Yes, you know, as everybody knows, as we age, our various organ systems, heart, lungs, kidneys, bones, brain change. And when older people develop symptoms that affect mood, orientation, judgment, organization of thinking, impulse control, then in order to correctly assess that, you have to look at many different organ systems that can affect brain function. Uh, this, you know, this includes uh, cer- certainly past medical history, but uh, you know, all of medicine is supposed to be kind of biological, psychological, and social. And you put all those puzzle pieces together, and then you you try to come up with a, an answer for a patient or a diagnosis. But in the geriatric population, as I just said, it it gets particularly complicated because oftentimes multiple uh, organ systems in our body are changing at the same time. Where that's usually not the case, say in a twenty-year-old or a thirty-year-old, or uh, where you can, you know, you, you can say I've got a sore throat and that's the end of it. Whereas it's often not that simple in the senior population. You know, those are some very important points. And as as we look at, uh, especially the baby boomers, and we've got more people that are moving into the senior area of their lives and geriatric population in your treatment. Is an important component a part of this looking at their life history? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think I just read yesterday that the uh, senior population in our country is the largest it's ever been, and it's going to continue on that trajectory. But yeah, you know, you know, in our country, people move around a lot, and family members change jobs, and we get disconnected somewhat from our family. And for example, I'll give you an example of a patient I have right now. This is a lady that had a history, as well as we could tell of bipolar disorder, which is a mood disorder marked by mood swings particularly, but she's also developed dementia now, and uh, she's had several little strokes, and um, so her husband's deceased many years ago, and she's now living with her daughter, who was not in the family for many years because she moved with her job, so 
as we're trying to reconstruct her history, it's proved to be very difficult to get accurate information on her past medical and psychiatric history because the husband was kind of the reservoir of that, and he's deceased, and the daughter wasn't there to experience it, so she doesn't really know accurate details. So it, it makes it a real challenge to put together a, an appropriate diagnosis and treatment plan that's effective. So the, the the history is very important, whether it's, you know, most of the things we see involve breakdowns in heart, bones, chronic pain, and piecing that all together is very important. You know, that brings up another important point, as you mentioned, on what's kind of a life history what has been your overall medical record, et cetera, where we pull that together. When we look at today's healthcare delivery system, does that complicate geriatric behavioral health care? Well, just incredibly so. In fact, it's at a point right now that it's so fragmented that you often can't do the kind of job you need. For you know, for example, if those of us that are in the senior population, such as myself, 30 years ago, we had paper records, which mostly are not available anymore. So it's only since the computer record keeping has come about do we have sort of easier access. But as everybody knows, it's very difficult to get a singular primary care physician who is the same doctor that's seen you for years which is the way it used to be 25 or 30 years ago. Well, now, with insurance company driving panels, I'm sure everybody in the audience has had the frustration of, you know, going to an emergency room and this doctor's on the panel and this doctor's not on the panel and you can see this doctor and you can't see that doctor and you can go to this pharmacy, but you can't go to that pharmacy. Trying to synthesize all that information accurately is just almost impossible in the the way our healthcare system is being delivered right now. Right. I know it's complicated, and I think you brought up a good point to the audience. Uh, even if they're on in the geriatric population, they have probably experienced the types of things you talked about. You know, as you think in terms of patients, especially baby boomers, and we start talking about people that we refer to as reaching their Medicare age, many have different chronic illnesses. So as a result, many go to different physicians. What is the danger of polypharmacy and multiple physicians prescribing medications to seniors? Well, what you see now oftentimes is more and more people cannot access a primary care physician, so they're going to urgent care facilities, you know, on the spot for a sudden onset of some sort of symptom, whether it be a sore throat or chest pain, or and then the, the patient is now going to specialists on their own. They go to the heart doctor and they go to the orthopedic surgeon, the bone doctor, and these doctors are often giving prescriptions that no one other than the patient who who may be having trouble with their concentration and focus is keeping up with. And often the patients then are buying over-the-counter medications. And for example, most of the over-the-counter sleeping medications, which is a billion-dollar industry, most of those medicines are sedating and they interfere with 
cognition in senior citizens. They interfere with balance. Yet these are available over the counter, in our country at least. And so if you can imagine, the specialist is just trying to keep up with his area of expertise. Even though he's aware of the other medications, oftentimes we're not aware of the -the over-the-counter medicines, or we're not aware that Miss Jones went to the orthopedic surgeon and he gave her pain medications. And then before you know it, the patient's either passed out on the floor or they've gotten confused and run outside the house in the street. Uh, And so polypharmacy, as you referenced, is a big, big issue in in every age group, of course. But we're talking about the senior population where the brain is becoming increasingly sensitive to medications. You know, as we get older, our biology and our metabolism and the way we break down medications in our system is changing. So oftentimes, in my case, the dose I might use in a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old is about a fifth the dose I would use in a 30-year-old. Unless you're kind of experienced and you're aware of what the patient's taking and the multiple cumulative effects on the brain in particular, you're not going to be able to adequately treat the patient. And they're putting themselves at risk mixing those kind of medications without somebody overseeing it. Let me uh, kind of shift gears a little bit. I know you have different modes of treatment, inpatient, outpatient, different types of therapy that you use. But when you're dealing with senior citizens, when should a senior citizen consider inpatient behavioral health treatment? Yes, that's a, that's a very important question and often asked, and it's kind of an unknown source in our country, I would say, uh, that it's available. But if a senior citizen is having impairment in judgment, orientation, memory, concentration, or focus, then a close look needs to be taken to determine what has happened, particularly if the change is sudden or we call it acute. That means something has happened immediately or in the recent past. Now, sometimes your primary care doctor can assess that and refer you to specialists. And usually what happens is we've all just gotten together for the holidays. We get together with some of our family members, parents, and we're surprised to see that they're somewhat disinhibited. They're not acting the same. Their judgment's impaired. They can't pick out clothing in the closet that is coordinated like they used to. So we know something's happened. Well, somebody's got to assess that, and it becomes a safety issue often. So whenever any of those areas I mentioned are impeding a person's functioning, and certainly if it's endangering them, then they usually need to be hospitalized for an evaluation and treatment. We want to thank you so much, Dr. Herlihy, for taking time out of your schedule to be a part of the human side of healthcare and striving to improve the health of our community. Thank you. When we come back on the human side of healthcare, Steve and I are going to unpack more on the coronavirus and the flu, including some interpretations on the latest statistics. And also we're going to talk about how you can help prepare your family for what Dr. Herlihy and Steve were just talking about. That's coming up next, the round table on the human side of healthcare.
We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And we're back talking about this big news story that is just all over every headline now, the coronavirus. Ironically, Steve was at a hospital conference in San Antonio when all this news broke this week. Yeah, sure it was. And, you know, there was one case that was uh, verified and then later in the day, a second case. But, you know, Thomas, I just really hope our listeners aren't panicking I think in San Antonio, it was well-planned. These people were already quarantined. That's the reason you do quarantine people. You suspect they could have the virus, and in fact, they did. But it wasn't like someone who was out in the city walking around, you know, that was finally identified as the coronavirus. And I can tell you the state agencies, the local health departments, Obviously, the federal agencies like the CDC are working very closely together. The hospitals are prepared. It doesn't mean that things won't change as we go along. I just hope people won't panic. Now, you were involved in the last big viral outbreak called Ebola. And people who were here in the Dallas area when that happened know very well. I mean, that was a... Wow, big, fast, kind of like this. And, of course, Ebola was much more lethal than anything close to what we're talking about with coronavirus. But during that whole episode, you were answering a lot of media questions throughout that process. What do you think is different now in preparedness? Well, you know, I think hospitals are very well prepared for this. Did we learn lessons from Ebola? Of course we did. But at the same time, I think there was still a sense of panic with Ebola that was unwarranted. Uh, And I think the hospitals responded well. I think the situation uh, was handled in a very appropriate manner. But I think the lessons we've learned is to communicate and cooperate and coordinate. And I think the federal CDC has been a little more responsive and active in this situation. You were mentioning to me earlier about some of the drills that are taking place or the preparedness and daily calls. Would you explain that of what's going on kind of behind the scenes that people might not know? Yeah, there are calls uh, every day and those calls take place, especially between state agencies, local agencies, Kudos to our county health departments, not just in Dallas County, but Tarrant County, Hunt County, Denton County. They're all working collaboratively together. You know, and and we need to keep this in perspective, kind of like what Dr. Pearl said. Wash your hands. Practice good health habits. Yes, we do have the coronavirus in Texas now. We have to deal with it. But I was on the CDC website And they estimate thus far 31 million Americans have contracted the flu and approximately 350,000 have been hospitalized. They estimate about 12,000 people have died from the flu thus far this year. And it hasn't really reached its peak. And it could be as many as 30,000 people die from the flu this year here in the USA. Now, I am not in any way 
saying that the coronavirus is not serious. It's very serious. But we really need to focus on getting that flu shot, too. You know, you and I were talking, what if you got the coronavirus and flu at the same time? See, that's one of the things that listening to Dr. Pearl was so informative. And by the way, if you didn't catch all of that, if you're listening live here on KRLD and you didn't catch what we're talking about in the first half of our program, go to our podcast. It's there now. It is called The Human Side of Healthcare, and it's on all the major podcast players. You can hear the whole thing. But when she was talking about the separation between flu and coronavirus, and theoretically you could have two major respiratory illnesses going on simultaneously, that's a problem. You know, you're certainly right. And, you know, if I could go back and talk a little bit more on San Antonio for a minute, I'm proud of how the system worked, that these folks were put in a place not to punish them in any way, but they had to be under quarantine. Good thing we did. Now we are having some people emerge with the virus. Hopefully they're going to be okay. And at the same time, I think there has been some planning that's gone in effect. You and I were talking about it, where there are major military bases near major airports where they have thought through where we're going to quarantine these people. So I'm looking at it from a positive point of view that it worked as opposed to it didn't work. And let's bring it back to perspective one more time with those numbers. In the United States, not worldwide, but in the United States, if you look at the number of deaths related to the flu versus the coronavirus, there's just no comparison. What's that, a 15 to 1 ratio? Exactly. I mean, this is a really, really, really big deal if you live in Huang, China. Absolutely. It's a big deal here from a perspective of get your flu shot and all the things we talked about on good personal hygiene. But I think right now you're exactly right. Let's just keep it in perspective. And look, if you need medical treatment, don't be afraid to go to a facility to get that treatment. If you're ill or break a bone or anything else, go to the hospital. They're ready and they are keeping this very, very secure. Absolutely. Let's shift gears here for just a quick second and go back to our visit with Dr. Herlihy, because I think there are some really important factors there, too, as we're dealing with our elderly and especially in preparing not only medical records, but also these directives that we also need to have as a family portfolio for our loved ones who are up in age. He did an excellent job of talking about keeping your personal medical records, but always remember Medical power of attorney, advanced directives, these are very important documents as well. Baby boomers continue to age out. Did you know that, Thomas? I are one. <laughs> yeah. I am, I am as well. And my point is, this is going to continue and continue as the baby boomers continue to age out. This is going to be extremely important. You know, what we're talking about here is the power of the family meeting. And this would be a great reminder, and especially maybe even while we're kind of coming up onto tax season and you're digging through records anyway, set a family conference and get those medical records in order. You don't have to pull every medical condition and every office visit, but at least use, and you know, you can use collaborative documents online where the family can literally get together and collaborate on a document. Oh, yeah, she was treated for this. 
oh yeah, he had a fall back in 92 or these various things that you can reconstruct so that if your family member ends up in the situation like what you heard, then you're prepared. You're exactly right, Thomas. Medical power of attorney, advanced directives, and your family health records. We all need to do it and we need to document it. Now let's talk for a second about next week's show because we have somebody who you might know and remember from Dallas Television, Janet St. James. Oh, I definitely remember Janet from Dallas Television, and you'll you'll hear about this when we're doing the interview. She's one of my favorite people, but darn, she could ask some tough questions. <laughs> and she used to put me on the spot, but I got to tell you, I did my best, but somehow my answers just weren't as good as her questions. <laughs> well, now Steve Love gets to turn the tables on Janet St. James because he's going to be behind the mic asking her the questions. Janet, as you may know, left Channel 8 News a couple of years ago and is now in the communications area at Medical City. The day before she was to start that job is when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. That is amazing. And to hear her tell that story and to hear all the emotions and the feelings she experienced is just unbelievable. She has such an incredible perspective on life and she talks openly and candidly about her diagnosis, her path, her treatment, her family, how they're dealing with it, how she's dealing with it. All of that for the first half of the show next week. Yeah, the way she describes it, she has a comforting effect because she's so sincere. You can catch our podcasts on all the major podcast players, and we will be back here with Janet St. James next Sunday at 1 on KRLD and Radio.com. 